Fact number one, on a massive clinical review, they found that fiber is consistently associated with longevity, something that was so empowering when it comes to the health benefits of fiber. It's rare that you will see a study speak so powerfully to one nutrient or one thing in our diet. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Today's show, all about fiber. In fact, you are going to learn the five things that you need to know about fiber, and a whole lot more. Dr. Will Bolsowitz, a.k.a. the Gut Health MD, he is here with us today. He is the author of the book Fiber Fueled. And as you heard at the top of the show, you already know how important fiber can be if we want to live a longer and healthier life. So we will be getting into that study that Dr. Bolsowitz was discussing. And plus, we're also going to be getting into how fiber can affect your gut and why it can, in fact, be your gut's best friend. You're also going to learn why not all fiber is the same and that different plants have different kinds of fiber. And then you will learn the best possible way to fuel your body with all the fiber that it needs. Covered all of that, plus on the exam room live, we took a lot of your questions as well. Viewer questions like fiber in smoothies versus juicing. What's the difference there? And what if fiber really makes you go? Like really go? How can you clear that up as you transition to a plant-based diet, plus a whole lot more science on top of that? Also on the show today, Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis will be here with another diet and health myth-busting Q&A when we open up the doctor's mailbag. Some great questions came in this week for them as well, like should vegans take just a B12 supplement or should they be looking more at a B-complex multivitamin? And then should you be concerned about the arsenic that is found in rice? And what are the best practices for bone health for women as they get older? Lots of good questions, plus a ton of others. But first, are you ready to go to nutrition school and learn about fiber? Well, let's go ahead and do that right now with a recent conversation from the exam room live. My next guest, well, he says that fiber may just also be the cure to what ails you. He loves it so much that he's written an entire book on it called Fiber Fuel. He is a board-certified gastroenterologist and an all-around good guy. Please welcome Dr. Will Bolsowitz back to the exam room live, better known as the Gut Health MD. How are you, sir? Chuck, it's a pleasure to be on the air with you here today. Uh, I love the way that you say my last name. You're one of the few people that it sounds like it's rolling off your tongue so effortlessly. 
And it makes me wonder whether or not you're actually Eastern European. And I didn't realize it. It's quite impressive. Uh, well, I appreciate that. The fact of the matter is I was a huge NYPD blue fan growing up. So Sipowitz <laughs> rolled off the tongue. So now I've got Bolsowitz and it, it's, it's just so easy. It's just too easy. Anyone with a W-I-C-Z or anything that is similar to that, even W-I-T-S, I automatically just feel this kinship with them, and I can appreciate that. So thank you for that, Chuck. You're my guy. All right. Now, let's uh, let's be everybody's guy here, Dr. Will Bulsowitz. Uh, you've got five facts about fiber that everyone should know. So let's go ahead and tee them up. Fact number one, the stage is yours. Fact number one, uh, the... All right, hold on just a moment. I, I apologize. I should pull well, this I, up. I stumped you. It's okay. I can help you out. I happen to have a cheat sheet in front of me. You just say the word, my friend. All right. Here we go. Here we go, Chuck. So fact number one is that on a massive clinical review, they found that fiber is, is consistently associated with longevity. This is a longevity food, folks. It protects us from numerous diseases. Chuck, can I unpack that a little bit? Oh, dissect it, impact it, do whatever you got to do with it. Okay. So this is a study that was published in January of 2019. They used the highest quality evidence that exists. This is important for people to understand because there is a hierarchy of evidence. And the hierarchy of evidence is important because sometimes you'll hear people talk about a rat study or an anecdote, and they'll, they'll use that information as if it's just as good as a randomized controlled trial or a meta-analysis where they basically compile all of the data into one place. In this study that was published in January of 2019, they used only the highest quality information that exists, randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses. That's all that they use. And what they found in this study, Chuck, was something that was so empowering when it comes to the health benefits of fiber. It was, I mean, it's rare that you will see a study speak so powerfully to one nutrient or one thing in our diet. They found that fiber reduces our risk of having a heart attack, reduces our risk of dying of a heart attack. That's our number one killer. Fiber reduces our risk of developing colon cancer. That's the number two cause of cancer death in America. It reduces our likelihood of having a stroke. It reduces our likelihood of having diabetes. They found that people live longer when they consume fiber. And by the way, they also lose weight when they consume fiber. The bottom line is that in this study where they compiled the data, they brought the highest quality resources to the table, laid it on the table, and they saw what it showed. They found that fiber is one of the healthiest things that you can include in your diet. And this is important, Chuck, because 97% of Americans are not getting an adequate amount of fiber. And that's what's really important. Mm, say that number again. How many percentages of Americans? 97% of Americans are not getting enough fiber. 97% of Americans are consuming too much protein. And we sit around and we ask, where am I going to get my protein from? And it's time for us to shift, to turn the table and say, where am I going to get my fiber from? We need to turn the emphasis towards the fiber because we have plenty of protein. We don't need to worry about that. Oh, America, we can definitely do better than 3%. Come on now. All right, fact number two. This is a great one, especially for fans of gut bacteria. And as crazy as that sounds, I know there are plenty of them watching right now. Fact number two, Chuck, fiber is the preferred food of our gut bugs. Okay, this is the preferred food of our gut bugs. 
Now that sounds a little bit weird. When we think about fiber, most of us think about, okay, fiber goes in the mouth. It passes through. It kind of sweeps some stuff out and it comes out the other end as a bowel movement. That has been sort of the way that we were raised on fiber. It's time for us to, to re-examine our relationship with fiber. It's time to acknowledge that this is not the fiber that you were thinking about when your grandma was stirring the orange drink in the morning. This is a new fiber. This is the sexy fiber, okay? This is the 2020 version where fiber goes in the mouth, passes through the intestine until it gets to your colon. And when it gets there, it comes into contact with your gut bugs, these gut bugs, they get into a feeding frenzy and they are devouring this fiber because this is their preferred food. And the beauty of it, Chuck, is that when you feed your gut bugs, you empower them. They grow stronger and then they turn around and they want to reward you. They want to heal your body. Your gut bugs can be your best friends. Yeah, <laughs> that's a phrase that you don't really hear every day. Your gut bugs can be your best friends. Uh, let's stick on gut bugs for fact number three, because uh, I know that when you happen to eat uh, fiber, they release something very important. What is that? By the way, Chuck, don't be jealous that my gut bugs are my best friends. I realize <laughs> that you and I are friends, but don't be jealous, my friend. Okay, you're my guy, man. Right. I, you know, I thought I thought it was like me here, gut bugs here, me here, but no, it's the other way around. Gut bugs, then me. It's very close. It's very close. <laughs> Nonetheless, moving on to number three, the the beauty of it is this: when you feed your gut bugs, when they consume this fiber, they will turn around and reward you. What do they reward you with? The most powerful thing in nutrition that I've ever come across, short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids are what we would describe as a postbiotic. A postbiotic, we've heard about probiotics, right? Probiotics are the living bacteria that are good for us. By the way, the probiotics you don't need to take as a capsule. They already live inside of you. We're now hearing more about prebiotics. Prebiotics are the food for the gut microbes, fiber. Fiber is the prebiotic. But the beauty is that prebiotics come together with probiotics and what they release are the postbiotics. These postbiotics are the real game changers, not just when it comes to gut health, by the way, Chuck, not just when it comes to gut health, but for the entire body. So, you know, just to walk you through real quick, because I could talk all day about these short chain fatty acids. I'm totally obsessed with them. <laughs> Uterate, acetate, and propionate. They heal the gut. They reverse leaky gut. They empower the good microbes inside of you. They actually suppress the inflammatory ones like E. coli, salmonella, shigella. They directly prevent colon cancer. Remember, I said in the beginning, fiber prevents colon cancer. It's been proven. They also optimize our immune system. They affect insulin sensitivity. Again, I said fiber prevents type 2 diabetes. They actually uh, spread throughout our entire body with anti-inflammatory benefits. We think that they prevent coronary artery disease, our number one killer. And they travel upstairs, they fix the blood-brain barrier, and they cross the blood-brain barrier, and they actually prevent Alzheimer's disease. So what we're talking about is something with healing benefits throughout the entire body. It is incredibly powerful. And it's time for us to make sure that we're getting enough of these short chain fatty acids. And the way that we do that is by eating more fiber. 
Get on board the short chain fatty acid train. I'm loving hearing that. Uh, number four is one that I think a lot of people wonder about. So go ahead and spill that one for us, my friend. Okay. Number four, this is really important. When you start getting into the logistics of, okay, well, Doc, where am I going to get my fiber from? I want you guys to know up front, not all fiber is the same. Okay. Don't just count grams of fiber. Don't go out and buy a fiber one bar because they advertise that they got five grams of fiber in there. That's not what it's about. It's about plants. All plants contain fiber. All plants contain prebiotic fiber that will feed your gut microbiome. There is no plant devoid of fiber. There is no plant that will not enhance your gut microbiome. And the beauty of it is, Chuck, is that each of these plants have different types of fiber that will feed different microbes within your gut. And that is a beautiful thing. All right. And take us home. Fact number five, my friend. All right. Taking it home and just driving the final point forward. And if there's only one thing that you paid attention to today, let it be this, that eating a diversity of plants at every single meal is the best way to optimize your microbiome. This is the take-home point. This is the core philosophy that you need in your diet. I value and appreciate that many of the people who are listening to us right now, Chuck, already eat a plant-based diet, but we can do better. We can do better. And the way that we do better is by making sure that at every meal, we're adding in those extra herbs and spices. We're looking for you know, the zucchini, the mushrooms, the onions that we can throw into our tomato sauce to spice it up. There are opportunities at every meal to get more variety, more diversity of plants. And when you get diversity of plants, you're getting diversity of fiber. And when you get diversity of fiber, you are feeding as many different types of gut bugs as you can possibly feed. In a diverse microbiome is a strong, resilient microbiome. It's the type of microbiome that every single one of us wants to have. The way that we get that is by eating a diversity of plants. So make this a core philosophy for your life. All right. We still have a couple minutes here. Would you be okay if we grabbed a couple of questions from viewers right now? I would love to do that, Chuck. This is from Hexacorn at 1220. Wants to know what's better, insoluble fiber or soluble fiber? Okay. So I said before, there are many, many different types of fiber. We think that there's at least millions, potentially even billions of types of fiber that exist in nature. And to keep it simple, we have broken it into soluble versus insoluble fiber. The soluble fiber is the one that you could put into a beverage, stir, and it will dissolve. It will disappear. Insoluble fiber is the grit. It is the roughage. It will not dissolve no matter what you do. You could boil that water. There will still be grit and roughage in there. So that's the difference between the two. Now, which is better? I personally, if I have to give my heart to one of these two, I would give my heart to soluble fiber. Soluble fiber is the food, is the fiber that actually feeds the gut microbiome. This is the type of fiber that they consume and ultimately turn into short-chain fatty acids. If you want short-chain fatty acids, you, you should aim towards soluble fiber. But the beauty of it is this. If you eat a diversity of plants, every plant has its own mix of soluble versus insoluble fiber. You don't need to prioritize one plant versus another. Just eat them all in abundance, in diversity, and you will be more than feeding your gut microbiome exactly what it's starving for. 
All right. Good question here from Lisa at 1220. Uh, what about a person who gets the runs from fiber? So I'm, I'm guessing maybe they're transitioning over to a plant-based diet here. Lisa, this is a great question. So when we when we start to shift our diet towards a plant-based diet, and I think, Chuck, you're probably right. As we start to shift towards a plant-based diet, we have to think about the fact that fiber is not meant to be something where we just cannonball into the pool. We're supposed to ease our body into it. It's kind of like exercise. When you go to the gym, you wouldn't show up the first day and lift the, and lift the heaviest weight that exists in the gym. You would show up and you would go nice and light that first day, and then you would come back next time, and you would do just a little bit more. And that's the way that we need to approach our fiber. And uh, same principle apply for gas, because we had somebody else asking about that. Should you slowly transition over to minimize the amount of gas you're producing? Yeah, that is something that you need to think about. But I would add one more thing, Chuck, which is that many people who suffer with gas and bloating are actually constipated. And believe it or not, you could poop every single day, still be constipated. If you're not completely emptying, you are backing up. And the the issue that exists is that if you are constipated and you start to rapidly ramp up your fiber, you will find that you are going to get even more gas, bloating, and flatulence. And so it's important for the person who is not moving their bowels through to establish a rhythm. And ideally, this should be done before you even really start to ramp up your fiber because when, you're, when your gut is in a rhythm, you will find it is so much easier for your body to adapt to the fiber that you are now introducing. All right. Now let's, let's talk about what it was you were just discussing because we had somebody ask this question three times. Uh, how do you know if you have completely emptied your bowels? We're just going to get really dirty here. So how do you know if you've completely emptied your bowels other than stepping on the scale and saying, oh, my God, I lost three pounds? <laughs> okay, so you call it dirty. I call it my day job. This is what I do for a living. <laughs> um, but that being, and I, and I talk about it literally all day because I go home and my four-year-old son wants to talk about it when I get home. But nonetheless, um, the the symptoms that are associated with constipation are what you should be aware of to begin with, which is that gas, bloating, abdominal discomfort that could be in an, in, an, in any of a number of locations, left to lower left upper, right upper, right lower, or even around the belly button could all be due to constipation. Um, nausea, loss of appetite, getting full very quickly, even acid reflux and fatigue can be symptoms associated with constipation. So the point, Chuck, is that when we are completely emptying, we have that sense of relief. We don't have to go to the bathroom again in 30 minutes because we have completely emptied. And there is none of these symptoms because there is no backing up. And so when you are moving things through adequately, you have that complete, that sense of complete relief. You also are not suffering from the symptoms that are associated with constipation. All right. Final question comes to us from Randy at 1226. Simply put, is there such a thing as eating too much fiber? There is such a thing as, as consuming too much fiber. And it's kind of like going back to the exercise analogy, Chuck, that there is such a thing as pushing your body too hard from a fitness perspective. So for the person who's going to the gym, you have limitations of what your body is capable of doing. And what you want to do is you want to push those limitations to a higher level. So when you're working out, you work out just below that threshold where you would hurt yourself or do some harm. Same is true with fiber. You should not push your fiber content to the level that you actually 
feel, you know, feel gas and bloating, feel discomfort. Instead, you should push it to that level where you are able to get more fiber into your diet, exercise your gut, make your gut microbiome stronger, allow it to adapt with what you're doing to your diet, but not push it so hard that you're going to actually hurt yourself. You know what, Dr. B, I've done told a fiber fib. I'm going to sneak one more question in on you. That was not the last question. This is the last question from Darnetta at 1227. Going to ask this one because it gets asked so frequently. What are your thoughts on juicing versus blending fruits and vegetables? Okay, so um, I'm a fiber lover, right? I'm a fiber lover. So I think you know what my answer is going to be, which is that why would we remove the fiber, which is what juicing does? Why would we remove the fiber and throw it in the trash can when we could be sending it down to our gut bugs so that they can consume it and thrive off of it, turn it into short-chain fatty acids, and heal our body? So from my perspective, I am... um, I am certainly more of a believer in smoothies or homogenized, you know, uh, salads than I am in juicing. That is not to say that I would villainize juicing and say that there's no place for juicing whatsoever. It's just that when we do juice, it should not be done as the centerpiece of our diet. And it should be really done with, uh, frankly, a bitter juice that is predominantly vegetables where you're doing it for the purpose of getting phytonutrients and you're doing it as a boost or a supplement beyond an already healthy diet where you're consuming an abundance and a diversity of plants. But then with the smoothies, when you put those whole fruits, those whole vegetables in say a Vitamix, do you destroy the fiber at all there, even if you're keeping the peels and everything on there, or is it still good to go? No, it's it's still good to go. You're not destroying the fiber where it's inadequate. I mean, do I think that it would be better for you to actually put the whole food into your mouth and chew it the old-fashioned way? Yes, I would. But for many people, to create a smoothie, it is a way for them to get more um, of these health-promoting plants into their diet. And, And so to me, I celebrate that. I think it's a beautiful thing. All right. The name of the book is Fiber Fueled, and you definitely fueled us with five fiber facts and more today. Dr. Will Bolsowitz, appreciate you, my man. Chuck, thank you so much for having on. It's having me on. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. You are you have now surpassed my gut microbes. You are my best friend. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. We will do this again very soon, best friend. And you can find a link to my best friend's book, Fiber Fueled, in the episode notes. In that book, you're going to find way more than just five facts. I guarantee you, the entire book is just chock full of them. And frankly, it's one that should be in everybody's book collection. Go ahead and add that to your bookshelf. Pick up a copy. All right. Let's go ahead and broaden things up now as we open up the doctor's mailbag. Going to talk about all things now related to health and diet. Everything is on the table for this Q&A session with Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis. Now, this too was from the exam room live, which means that these are your questions, viewer questions, listener questions asked directly to the good doctors. Great questions too. What type of food causes fatty liver disease? And more importantly, can a plant-based diet also reverse it the same way that it can with these other chronic diseases. And then someone wanted to know about being just 
10 or 15 pounds overweight, are they still at higher risk for COVID-19? Well, you think about that because we've heard so many of these studies that have tied obesity to severe cases of COVID-19. So what if you're just a few pounds overweight? Dr. Barnard is going to weigh in on that. Plus, we're going to learn about the importance of fat and nutrients that are found in raw nuts and seeds and how not to go overboard with them. So you ready to raise your nutrition IQ? Let's go ahead and do that right now as we open up the doctor's mailbag. Dr. Barnard, I want to bring you in first. This is a question that comes to us from Sandra. She's wondering about fatty liver disease. She wants to know what types of foods can cause it and can a plant-based diet help to reverse it? Okay, um, I let me give a comment, but I would also invite Dr. Lewis to come in because at the Barnard Medical Center, that's one of the conditions that, that you expect to see fairly routinely in people who come in who have been on a standard American diet. Fatty liver disease means just what it sounds like, is that fat is accumulating in the liver tissue. It's extremely common in the United States. And unfortunately, we see in patients with diabetes, when we uh, send them up for magnetic resonance spectroscopy studies, you see fat inside the liver cells that cause insulin resistance. And fatty liver causes all kinds of other problems. So the question is, what kind of diet do I need? And the good news is, you don't need one diet to lose weight, another diet to lower your cholesterol, another diet to improve your fatty liver. A low-fat, healthy, plant-based diet does all of those things. And as the weight starts coming down, the fatty liver starts to resolve. So it's uh, it, it all works together. Dr. Loomis, your thoughts on this, some of the things that you've noticed working with patients over at the Barnard Medical Center? Sure. So fatty liver is very common. In fact, it's, it's increasingly common. Um, and unfortunately, you know, untreated fatty liver can go on to actually cause cirrhosis. And, and I've actually had a few patients um, over the past 10 years who have gone on to develop uh, liver cancer because of the cirrhosis. Um, you know, as Dr. Barnard said, fatty liver is, a, is associated with insulin resistance. So just like we get fat deposited in our, in our muscle cells, which creates insulin resistance, we can also get fat deposited in our liver cells, which also can contribute to insulin resistance. So we oftentimes see it in the setting of metabolic syndrome or prediabetes. Um, um, but again, the, the additional kind of risk associated with fatty livers, in addition to the insulin resistance that's associated with it, it, it can cause chronic inflammation in the liver. So there are a few that there are, there, it's, it's a small percentage of patients, but the problem is you can't tell the difference about who has just steatosis, which is just fat deposit in the liver versus steatohepatitis, which means fat deposit in the liver associated with um, um, uh, inflammation. And just like with, with uh, insulin resistance, a whole food, plant-based diet, very high fiber, very low fat is, is, and as, again, as Dr. Barnard said, there's no, there's no one diet to lower your cholesterol and another diet to lose weight and another diet to perform athletically and another diet to get rid of your fatty liver or reverse your insulin system. It's really all, all, all the same uh, thing, um, which is beautiful, really. Dr. Barnard, coming back to you here for this question. Uh, bone fractures, very common among football players, but you know who doesn't play football professionally? That would be uh, older women. And so Sherry writes at 1216, uh, she wants to know, what are the best practices for excellent bone health in older women? I keep getting these online ads for supplements. Um, I feel your pain. 
Um, it's true that commercial pressures have really distorted uh, the world of osteoporosis prevention. Uh, it started really with the dairy industry, with the whole idea uh, that was promoted back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that you need to drink milk as a child to build strong bones when you're young so that you'll have them sort of like a bank account to draw on later in life. Um, it, it, I have to say it has not worked out at all. If you look at the research on dairy consumption and bone integrity or fracture risk, uh, dairy products have virtually no effect at all on either one of them. Um, and then you have uh, the other commercial pressures, which is uh, pharmaceuticals. And there are pharmaceuticals that are often used, uh, particularly in women who have got osteoporosis and maybe had a fracture. They have substantial risks. So you'll want to talk with your doctor uh, about whether or not they are right for you. But the lifestyle steps are ones that you're aware of. You do need calcium. You don't need dairy. Uh, cows don't make calcium. The calcium that they have in milk all came from the grass they're eating. And that's because calcium is an element in the earth and it passes through the roots of the grass into the blades of grass. And so the cows get it. And hopefully you're not eating grass, but you might be eating kale and collards and broccoli and Brussels sprouts and other green leafy vegetables, most of which um, have highly absorbable calcium. Uh, so step two is you need to absorb that calcium, and that's the role of vitamin D. Vitamin D comes from the sun. Uh, it reaches your skin, and then it, the vitamin D is made in your skin, and that helps you absorb the vitamin D from the Brussels sprouts you just ate. If you live uh, in North Dakota, where I grew up, and it's there's not a lot of sun in November and December and January and February and March and April, um, you might want to supplement. It's a good idea. Most doctors would say probably 2,000 IUs, international units, per day. Um, then beyond that, give your bones a reason to live. No, you're not a football player, but you do want to have exercise. Even brisk walking because of the up and down movement will, will stress your hips and your thighs and so forth in a helpful way. That's good. Do some push-ups and other uh, uh, exercise that can, that can help you. Uh, this is a good time to be a non-smoker, to not overdo it with alcohol and to not overdo it with salt. So those are uh, a few basics for healthy bones. Sticking with you here, Dr. Barnard, uh, this is a good question from Catherine. She's uh, been watching us throughout the week talking about COVID. She says, when you talk about weight concerns and COVID, does this include people needing to lose just 10 or 15 pounds? Um, yes, it does. Um, when the virus emerged in um, China uh, at the beginning of this calendar year, the people who were very overweight, way into the obese category, had the highest risk of very severe cases. However, when you look at the people who had moderate overweight, mild overweight, it just stepped right down. The closer you got to a really healthy weight, the better off you were. So let's say you want to lose 10 or 15 pounds. If you do lose those, lose those 10 or 15 pounds, when COVID arrives, if it does, you're going to be likely better off. Why? Because fat cells in your body express on, on the surface of the cell, they express this thing called the ACE2 enzyme. That's the welcome mat that says to the virus, come on in. So the, the, the smaller your fat stores, the better. And what's the number? Um, go online. You can go to our website, pcrm.org, or go anywhere online to look for a BMI calculator, body mass index calculator. Put in your height, put in your weight. A number will come out, and it should be between 18.5 and 25 for 
that, that's a healthy weight range. Uh, there are some issues about BMI if you're if you have a lot of weight, but it's all muscle because you happen to be a, a bodybuilder, then the BMI uh, has to be taken with a grain of salt. But for the 99% of people who aren't bodybuilders, uh, the BMI is a pretty good index of whether your weight is in a good range. All right. Uh, here's a good question. This one for you, Dr. Loomis comes to us from Candy at 1217. You're the athlete among us here, Dr. Loomis. Candy wants to know how many times a week should a woman uh, of 52 years of age, how often should she be resistance training? So, yeah, that's a great question, Chuck. And resistance training is a very important part of staying healthy. Um, you know, maintaining muscle mass, uh, muscle tone increases insulin sensitivity. It, 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 as, as, as we age, it, it uh, improves balance and decreases fall risk and risk for hip fractures and things like that. It's been shown you, you, you probably need about two to three days a week of resistance training. Uh, unlike endurance training, where really you should try to do something, you know, most every day. Um, and it doesn't really matter how, what form that resistance training takes. You can do weights, you can do dumbbells, you can do machines, you can do, uh, I use resistance bands at home now because the gym is still closed where I go. Um, you can do body weight, do planks and push-ups and things like that. Um, you need about, um, if you're going to lift weights, it needs to be a weight you can comfortably lift between about 10 and 15 times um, and then about two to three sets um, of, of each weight. So, and again, two to three days a week, you, you do want to let your muscles recover between, you don't want to do it, you know, more than about every other day, just because your, our muscles need time to rebuild, to, to, to recover from the workout and then, and then uh, uh, rebuild themselves. And that, that's, you know, how we build muscle mass. Um, again, endurance training, you know, needs to be um, um, uh, most days, I, you know, just as an aside, I, I think it's unfortunate, you know, we, we as human beings evolved to be physically active because we had to be physically active to survive. We had to gather and hunt food or wandering from fight leopards. And so, you know, if you look at our the, the anatomy and biomechanics of our feet and ankles and knees and hips and our cardiovascular system and even our stress response, it all it's it's all designed to facilitate the performance of physical activity. Unfortunately, I would say that physical activity has devolved the modern world. And what I mean by that is. Um, you know, we either, you know, we put on special clothes, we go to a special place, we do a special thing. It has a start and a stop. We tend to do that or not do anything, you know, sit on the couch. Right. But in fact, there's lots of ways to incorporate physical activity into your day-to-day routine that doesn't involve exercise per se, you know, taking the stairs instead of the elevator, parking on the farm in the parking lot, working in the garden, you know, going for a bike ride on the CNO canal or hike in Rock Creek Park if you're in DC. So all of those things count. So it's really about, I mean, I'm not discouraging people from going to the gym, but the point is you don't have to do that to be physically active. Um, and, and, and so it's physical activity that we're really looking for, which should include a, a, a resistance training component. We have time for a few more questions. So keep on posting those in the comment section now, or send them to us on Twitter using the hashtag exam room live. Dr. Barnard bouncing back over to you. This is a question from Anna at 1215. She wants to know, should somebody take B12 alone or should that be a B complex? Oh, great question. Um, B12 alone is perfectly fine. And the reason that I say that is you're very likely are getting all of the other B vitamins from the vegetables and beans that you're eating. So if you take a B complex, you're getting B12 and you're getting the other B vitamins, but B12 is really the only one that you're missing. Um, By the way, you can take it on an empty stomach. You can take it with food. Either way, it's good. Uh, It works fine. 
And even if you have absorption issues, uh, you're not making uh, enough stomach acid, for example, these B12 supplements are pretty highly absorbed even in the absence of stomach acid. And somebody had a follow-up to that. How much B12 should we be taking every day? Uh, the amount, the, the recommended daily allowance is 2.4 micrograms, but if you, which is tiny, it's not a gram, it's not a milligram, it's micrograms and 2.4 micrograms is the amount that adults need. So you race over to the health food store, look at the B12 aisle and pick up the bottles and you will discover there is not a single bottle on the shelf with 2.4 micrograms. They've got 100, they've got 200, they got 500, they got 5,000, they got 10,000 and you're going to think, this is enormous. I, I don't need that much B12. And you know what? You're right. So get the smallest one they sell and take it every day. If it's uh, a real boatload, like a thousand micrograms, you can take it every other day, something like that. And, and one last uh, little caveat here. We used to say that B12 couldn't ever be toxic in overdose. Um, but we've, we've known for a long time that if you have, um, too little of certain vitamins. It's not good. If you have too much of some vitamins, like vitamin A, that can be toxic. And with B12, we thought, well, no matter how much you overdo it, you're going to be okay. Um, I want to be a little more cautious about it. I don't think we should be doing wildly um, overdosing. We, we shouldn't be wildly overdosing vitamin B12. The reason I say that is some data have come out looking at people who run chronically really high B12 levels, and they don't seem to do as well as people who have their B12 in a healthy range. So, a uh, long-winded answer, but the amount you need is 2.4 micrograms. Get the smallest supplement you can. Take it every day. If you take a multiple vitamin, it's got B12 in it. Take that every day. You're going to be uh, in good shape. All right. And I want to stick with you uh, one more time. This is a great question from a viewer. Uh, Dr. Barnard here comes to us at 1211. Uh, they write, I eat rice very frequently at least once a day. Should I be concerned about the arsenic in it? Uh, that's a great question. You know, there, there are um, a couple of issues here. One is that there is arsenic in the soil in certain areas. And I think I'm going to throw a little bit of blame at the poultry industry, which has used arsenical compounds as worming agents in chickens. And so some of that has been an environmental contaminant as well. Um, so anything that grows in the soil can pick up traces of it. The traces are, are quite modest. So uh, most of us haven't been too concerned about it. But if you are, uh, you can look uh, online and you will see different brands that discuss uh, their contaminant levels. Surprisingly enough, when I've looked in this, in some cases, the imported rice is cleaner in certain, in, in certain areas, which I've attributed to the fact that they don't have such big poultry industries there as, as we do in America. Dr. Loomis, team this one up for you. It comes to us from Bernadette. She wants to know, can you please comment on the importance of healthy fats and nutrients from whole raw nuts and seeds? I'm worried about overdoing it with them. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, um, we, we talk, there's, a, there's different kinds of fat in our diet. There's, you know, saturated trans fats, uh, trans fats being something you should completely eliminate from your diet. There's really no healthy level of trans fat. It typically comes from fat that's been cooked at a high temperature and it gets transformed and marked association with, um, with um, um, uh, heart disease. Um, so 
we know that that very high fat diets, you know, a they can lead to weight gain because there's nine gram, there's nine calories in a gram of fat versus only four calories for in protein and carbohydrates. So you know, every every fat, every gram of food you switch from fat to protein or carbohydrate, you cut the calories in half. That being said, we our bodies do need fat. We 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 need fat for a healthy brain, for nervous system, you know, our cell walls. So there is a need for fat. Um, however, um, you know, and, and so. F- the, the the fats that occur in plants are tip, are much are, are mainly unsaturated fats or polyunsaturated fats, which are the most healthful fats. There are some foods that have uh, a little bit more saturated fat, particularly avocados. You know, some nuts, uh, coconut in particular has is fairly high in saturated fat, and those are okay um, as part of a healthful diet. But you do need to be careful. Um, the kind of the natural macronutrient ratios of a whole food plant-based diet are about 75% unprocessed whole food plants. Um, 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 it's about 15% plant-based per percent fat. And so that that's really what you should shoot for is to try to limit your fat intake to no more than about 10 or 15% of your total calories. That's really hard to do if you're eating a ton of nuts or, you know, eating a couple avocados every day, or you're cooking with a lot of cooking oil and things like that, or, you know, you're eating chips that have oil added. Oil has become somewhat ubiquitous and a lot of the, at least the more highly processed foods that we eat. So you need to be careful. So, but there's nothing wrong with, with, you know, again, with eating avocado and nuts. I, I recommend my patients use them almost like a condiment. So, you know, if you want to have a, a few slices of avocado in your, in your, in your black bean bowl or a burrito, or you want to, um, you know, throw a, a handful of nuts on the, on your oatmeal in the morning, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you do need to, to be careful about the overconsumption of these very high fat, whole food, plant-based foods, particularly again, nuts, seeds, and um, avocado. They do play a role, but you just have to be careful. All right, Dr. Barnard, let's wrap things up here with a couple of follow-up questions. This one comes to us from Edith at 1229. She says, if chickens are given arsenic for worms, does the meat then have arsenic in it as well? Can, yes. Uh, First of all, there there are so many reasons to get away from chicken in particular. Uh, Even when you take off the skin and throw away the dark meat, just the chicken breast itself is about 23% fat. So it's got a lot of fat. About a third of that fat is saturated fat. That's the one that Dr. Loomis was talking about as being a bad fat. You want to get away from it. Chicken has almost the same cholesterol content as beef. And it's not just the arsenic and things that we're concerned about, but uh, salmonella and other uh, fecal uh, organisms are present in a lot of the chickens when they come to the store. So I'm hoping you'll cross it off your grocery list. And final question of the day comes to us from Carol at 1228. Wants to know, is consuming nutritional yeast enough B12 without then taking a supplement? It would be if you take a lot of it. Um, When you get the nutritional yeast uh, canister at home, look at how much is in uh, one serving. And what you'll discover is it's typically lower than the RDA. The, the recommended daily allowance. So I would use nutritional yeast. I think it's a, it's certainly a tasty thing. It's got no fat, unlike the cheese that it replaces. Um, so it's a good thing, but it may not quite meet your um, B12 needs.
If you want to get in on the fun, you can join us for the exam room live. Get your question answered on the doctor's mailbag. We do this Monday through Friday right at noon Eastern over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. So go ahead and like them on Facebook and then subscribe to the channel on YouTube as well. Already in just the first few months of doing the exam room live, had more than a million and a half people tune in. We would love for you to become one of them. Become an exam roomie. Hang with us for a little while. Become enlightened. Become inspired. Fill up your basket full of nutrition knowledge and head out into the world and pass that on. Plus, you can get your question answered by Dr. Barnard, Dr. Loomis, Dr. Bolsowitz, any one of our wonderful experts who come on. This is your opportunity to partake in the doctor's mailbag. Now, coming up on the next show, we are going to be launching our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign for 2020, a very important show. Dr. Christy Funk, she will be joining us. And as a matter of fact, she will be here all month long. And so on the next episode, we are going to start with a look at what we can and cannot control about breast cancer. Going to be looking at the myths there. What's in our power and what's completely out of our control? We're going to find out. She'll be here with a look at the risk by age, genetics, and diet. Specifically, the foods that are linked to increased prevalence of breast cancer. And the foods, by the way, that can also reduce your risk of having breast cancer. And in a lot of cases, reduce it dramatically. So Dr. Funk, she's going to be here with that. And she also has some great new information to share with us, all designed to save tens of thousands of lives. Join us for this important show. Go ahead right now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee. Leave a five-star rating and a nice comment. And then please also share if you care. Before we go, I wanted to share this from the Look Who's Vegan Now file. Victoria Beckham is telling her nearly 29 million followers on Instagram what she wants. What she really, really wants. She wants meat and dairy out of her diet and not to be a wannabe vegan. She is the real deal. The Spice Girls member is following in the footsteps of her famous soccer star husband, David Beckham, who also recently announced that he has taken meat off of his menu, swapping out steak in favor of smoked watermelon. How tasty is that? Smoked watermelon. Victoria Beckham also previously having spoken about having issues with acne and perhaps her new diet will also be able to help her in that arena as well. I want to say thank you again to three of the best doctors on the entire planet. Doctors Neil Barnard, Jim Loomis, and of course the gut health MD himself, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>